everyone. I'm Betsy. And I'm Greg. And we want to invite you to check out our podcast, Going On 30. Each month, Betsy and I take a look back at a movie that was released 30 years ago that was either nominated or should have been nominated for Best Picture. We talk about the legacy of the film, choose the best scenes and performances, and explore our own hot takes about the movie. And we discuss the greatness of Tom Cruise, an actor oh, who has graced our screens for multiple decades, taking on some of the most artistically challenging pursuits while displaying what can only be described as an everyman relatability. An actor, nay, a thespian, who pushes oh. the boundaries of what the medium is capable of while revealing the humanity that's underlying. All right, all I'm of- done. I cannot, I cannot tolerate this anymore. So listen to Going on 30 every month right here on the Popping Collar Speed, wherever you get your podcast. I love you, Tom. Oh, jeez. I'm Greg Knight. Hi, I'm Ryan Parker. And this is PCTV, a popping collar side project where we randomly select a current television show that you should be streaming right now. Uh, Ryan and I have each picked six shows from the top streaming apps, including Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Max, Prime Video, Apple Plus. This month, we're talking about the Netflix series Money Heist. My name is Tokyo. But when this story began, that wasn't my name. Don't move, or I'll blow you in half! How would stealing about 2.4 billion euros sound? Mom, I'm thinking about going on a trip. No one has ever hit that hard. Not even in New York, London, or Monte Carlo. So if my picture needs to be in the news again, at least it'll be for the greatest heist in history. And every family in this country will be asking, what are they doing? What are we robbing? The Royal Mint of Spain. It's absolutely imperative that the police don't have any idea what we're doing. But be very careful, because the second any blood is shed, we'll no longer be Robin Hoods, but just a bunch of plain punks. It's time! So just trust us and obey. But all that peace was only the calm before the storm. Thief. A murderer. Ryan, I've got a brief description of Money Heist. Would you like to hear it? You know I will. <laughs> it's actually really brief. And I think it's a description of the first season. So it says this. An unusual group of robbers attempt to carry out the most perfect robbery in Spanish history, stealing 2.4 billion euros from the Royal Mint of Spain. And wouldn't that qualify as the most perfect robbery in human history? Certainly would have to be up there for one of the best robberies in human. Is there a a non-human robbery that you're thinking of? Is that I don't know. I'm sure animals break into other animals' cafes and walk out with things. You know, I don't know, food. Yeah, squirrel on squirrel crime. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so that is a that's a great um, that's half of the series, and you watched it more recently than I, so I may lean on you just a little bit 
yeah. for some of the um, like kind of factual parts of the, of the narrative, if you will. Uh, the back half of the whole series is uh, another heist. Right. So it's yeah. two heists in one, in one big series. This, the second heist is from the Bank of Spain. That's right, so yeah. You have the Mint, where they're printing money, and then you have the Bank of Spain. So, right. well, Greg, I don't know. I'm going to let you kind of orchestrate, because there's both the show itself is very compelling, but also the life of the show, if you will, about how it kind of came to be and how popular it eventually became is also kind of interesting too. Well, I'll just turn it over to you on that point then. So my question was, why did you pick this show? But that'll probably dovetail into, you know, where did the show come from a little bit too? Yeah, there's going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say one thing that I know you'll circle back to over the course of the episode, because part of the reason I picked the show, well, that I, that I started watching it, it was one of my more favorite series on Netflix in the last couple of years. And a, a pastor friend of mine recommended it to me. He uh, is from Mexico. Uh, he had, uh, I don't know how he heard about the show, but he and his wife watched it and loved it. And he said, dude, you got to watch this show because it's kind of like Jesus and his disciples robbing a bank. And well, then I was hooked. I was yeah. hooked. I want to come back to that because I know you want to do a theology corner. So yeah. that, of course, was so intriguing to me. And then when I watched the first episode, and uh, you know, we'll say more about this later, but one of the things I like most about the show is that it's just so, every episode ends with this great cliffhanger, and you have to keep watching. So it's a perfect show for a streaming service, uninterrupted by weekly breaks or commercials. You know, I'd heard from from different folks, and maybe read in a couple different places. The series premiered in Spain, kind of in its season one life, if you will. I believe it was 15 episodes or something like that, that it kind of had a rather tepid response in Spain at first. And Netflix saw the series. The producer had a, his production company had a deal with Netflix and he kind of slipped uh, an exec at Netflix a, a, disc, a jump drive with uh, the first episode on it. And this exec at Netflix said, oh, I watched it. Oh, there might be something here, right? So he watched more and said, look, why don't you take this from 15 episodes and make in, into 22. So make the episode shorter. Mm-hmm. And if you notice throughout, throughout all the seasons, the episodes are different lengths. They're not all like uniform 52 minutes or whatever. Right. So it kind of fleshed it out into a longer series of like 22 episodes and it, it just took off. You know, Netflix doesn't really divulge too much, I think, except unless it's a huge hit. Right. And mm-hmm. so, for this one, at one point, um, I saw a note, and there's a fantastic GQ article, but something like uh, 65 million viewers, 65 million households tuned into the season four premiere on Netflix. And Dang. the author said, if you, made, if you made an autonomous republic of money heist watchers, it would be the 23rd most populous country in the world, sandwiched between the United Kingdom and Tanzania. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. So, I mean, it just, it really took off. And so you had, if you really were paying attention around the time the show was out and kind of in that third, fourth, fifth season or what would become those seasons, you know, if you could see uh, sporting events in Europe, if you watched soccer or football or whatever, people dressing up like the bank robbers because they, because they wore these Salvador Dali masks and red jumpsuits and mm-hmm. kind of all of a sudden all over the place in pop culture um, around the world, this kind of figure pops up. 
And uh, it's all part of the show. If you ever see a Salvador Dali mask in a red jumpsuit, that is Money Heist if you haven't seen the series. Yeah, it feels a little bit like the V for Vendetta mask, right? Which, yeah. which kind of gets co-opted by Anonymous a little That's bit. That's true. But- that's true. Yeah. It it yeah. it is almost like a social statement, like the mask and the outfit. Yeah. I mean, kind of like not unlike Handmaiden's Tale, you know, like um yeah. if you do With that, you're saying something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I want to come back to that. What it, what are you saying and what is the series saying? So it really um in 2018, uh, just a few more things about kind of how big it is and you know, yeah. and the great thing is that it kind of it lives on, right? For for the foreseeable future on Netflix. So if you haven't seen it, you still can. And uh, you can do like Greg and inhale all five yeah. seasons. Um, binge it. Yeah. And, 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 you know, correct me if I mean, it's hard not to, right. It's, they just, the, I love the hooks. And so in 2018, it became the most watched non-English language program on Netflix. And then had at that point, of course it cracked at that point, cracked the top five most watched series overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, the platform which is uh, a huge thing yeah i would say like my knee-jerk reaction to the show just right off the bat yeah was that it felt a little bit like lost um and i think that that speaks to like the cliffhanger nature that you're talking about you know this idea that the way that lost would work it would be like there would be something you know you could tell when the show was starting to come to a close because it would kind of like the action would ramp up and it would be like, Oh my God, I got to see what's next. Yeah. But then the other thing about it too, is this idea of like hidden information, right? Like we're not given all of the information up front. It's parceled out to us as it's necessary for the story of the show. So it's like when things seem chaotic eventually you learn that it's actually part of the plan yeah. until it's not part of the plan and it's chaotic <laughs> chaos, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, that's, that's the thing that I love is that it makes you second guess what's part of the plan and what's not. Cause once people start dying, that can't be part of the plan. Right. Un- unless it is. I mean, and that's the great thing about the series too. Um, oftentimes the characters are learning the plan as we are learning the plan. Mm-hmm. So no, there's very few people in the series, except for the professor, who is the the main guy, kind of the architect of the of the heists, uh, who knows everything. Everybody else is kind of in the dark to varying degrees. And so as as things happen, they learn more and we learn more. Yeah. I mean, it's not unlike... So, you know, the criticism that's around uh, Glass Onion from last year, right? It's like this yeah. whole idea of like, well, if it's a murder mystery, but you don't give me all of the information about the story up front, then how can I appreciate it as a murder mystery? And mm. you start to realize it's it's actually, it's a puzzle. And the mm. thing is, like, you don't know how many pieces are in the puzzle. That's the game of the movie. And that's yeah. kind of the game of the show. It's like... You're put. You're piecing something together, but you don't know when it's over until it's over. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. One of the characters, um, Miguel Haran, played Rio, and he's a kind of a boyish young hacker. This actor uh, says he watched his Instagram followers tick up from fifty thousand to a million over the course <laughs> of a forty-five minute car ride. Yeah. It's um. It's uh, I love stories like that. It's like you can see, and and most of these actors had kind of so. When Netflix greenlit kind of the expansion, 
and said to, you know, um, said to the producer, Alex Pina, you know, we want more. Mm-hmm. Most of the actors had kind of moved on from the show and those yeah. characters. And so you can imagine how surreal that must have been to say, wait, where's all this attention? Oh, we're going to go back in and do a whole lot more with this series. I, I, that must have been so fun. Yeah, it should be said, this show was over after two seasons. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it had an ending after the Royal Mint heist. So, yeah. effectively, they had to figure out, okay, so what would actually bring these people back together again to come out of hiding with their, you know, billion-dollar fortune to do another heist? And And so the last three seasons of the show are basically another heist. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be great for those actors, but it's also like, as a creator, I can also imagine that it's a little, you know, it's a sort of a scary proposition. You you want to keep following this trail for as long as you can, but it's also like, um, it kind of feels like you're flying blind a little bit on what your show is going to be, you know? But I just, what fun it must have been to sit around and, and think up like, okay, we're going to do yeah. this. There's like scuba tanks and all these, I'm already tipping, you know, Tipping the hat a little bit, but uh, that, that's such a cool thing. The the that what that creative process must have been like. I would imagine that some of those scenes where the professor is teaching the you know the members of the gang of mm-hmm. what it is that they're going to do were probably word for word pitch meetings in the writers' room because well, they good. were like I coming have... up with scenarios. You know, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That was my thing. Was like what immediately stood out was this. You know, I just. I love stories where it's just a group of people, a disparate group of people coming together to do their jobs well. And their job happens to be robbing a bank. Like, I just I love that idea, you know. And uh, and so that was the first thing that stood out to me. It's like it's you know, it's like a Spanish Ocean's Eleven. It's great. Who doesn't love Ocean's Eleven? (laughs) One writer said, if there's one thing humanity can agree on despite our differences, is that we enjoy watching supremely hot people fight and have sex. <laughs> there's, a, there's a little bit of both. There's a little bit of both in this series. There's a little bit of all of that. It yeah. is European after all. And that's how I started calling myself Tokyo. The one looking at my ass is Berlin. A wanted man all over the world. 27 heists, jewelry stores, auction houses, and armored vehicles. His biggest score, the Champs-Élysées in Paris. 434 diamonds. He's like a shark in a swimming pool. You can swim with him, but you're always nervous. He was in charge of the heist. The one coughing is Moscow. The first thing he dug was a mine in Astorias. Later, he figured out that he'd make more money by digging upwards. Six fur shops, three watch shops, and the rural credit union of the villas. He's an expert with any industrial tool. The one behind Moscow is Denver, his son. Drugs, busted teeth, broken ribs. He's the king of bar fights. Pure, hot-blooded. A ticking time bomb, perfect for a heist. Rio, he's my weakness. He's the Mozart of computers. He's been coding since he was six and knows everything about alarms and electronics. As for everything else, it's as if he was born yesterday. And there you have twins, Helsinki and Oslo. Even the most sophisticated plan needs soldiers. And what's better than two serves? Maybe they can think. But frankly, we'll never know. (laughs) Nairobi, a hardened optimist. She's been counterfeiting banknotes since she was 13. Now she's our quality control manager. She may be crazy, but she's a lot of fun. Realize that the noose 
will be talking about us every day. And every family in this country will be wondering, what are they doing? The professor. No criminal record. No registration. Hasn't renewed his ID since he was 19. Hey, so what was your best? And I'm going to I'm going to enlarge this a little bit because we're talking about TV. So it's a little bit different from movies. Okay. so I'll give it like best scene, best sequence, best episode or best storyline. Oh, I get to pick. Okay, thank you. Because like I said, I watched this some time ago and you're you're closer to it than I am. And I know this is going to be a cop out and I don't mean it to be, but. I just kind of loved it for every cliffhanger. I just, I loved yeah. that feeling. So I, I don't, that's an element of the show to be sure. And I thought it worked. I can see how some people would be like, oh, okay, not this again. But I, it was so much fun. Like what's yeah. wrong with having fun? And so yeah. it kept me hooked. And I don't, I, I think, I like to think that I binged the seasons quickly. I don't know that I could have binged all five as quickly as you did, but <laughs> it was, uh, that's one of the things I enjoyed most about the series was that it kept me in. It drew me back. Like yeah, episode after episode. I th- I mean, I did you ever work. question your loyalties as you were watching it? Like which characters you were on the side of and which you weren't, and stuff like that. No, and I pulled up the character list here. You know, there were some that I liked more as the series progressed. And this isn't going to mean much to listeners unless they've seen it. But Berlin and his relationship with the professor, I always loved those flashbacks. Yeah, because you learn really in the second heist that Berlin is also kind of an architect of this whole thing, Uh kind of a co-author with the professor and their relationship and and professional, like working together on this heist was one of my favorite elements of the show too, because they're both fantastic actors. Oh man. Their, their Bella Chow scene at the end of season one is just stunning. It's It's just so well done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, coming back to that too. Martina, sono alzato. Ho trovato l'invasore. O partigiano, portami via. Oh, bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 partigiano, portami via. E mi sento di Se io muoio da partigiano, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. E se io muoio da partigiano, tu mi devi seppellire. E seppellire la sui montagna. Oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. E seppellire. I gotta say, my f- I actually did have a favorite scene, and it speaks to what you're talking about. It's this cliffhanger nature of it, because the whole thing about a heist is that it's trying to get you to buy in with the robbers for the most part, mainly because you're with them, 
but it's like, you know, it's almost like, um, it's almost like watching training day or something, you know, you have this sort of skepticism to you where you're like, I mean, these are criminals. Like, I mean, you know, I'm really having to stretch my moral compass to like, you know, wrap in what it is that they're doing. Um, I mean, they've got like the air of Robin Hood's. But, mm-hmm. like, they're not giving the money away to the poor, you know? Like, they're stealing money for themselves. Like, that's what it is. And so you start to sort of try to figure out, okay, so where is the moral ground here, right? Like, what's going to make me pull for robbers against cops uh, in this situation? And what are what's the despicable thing that a hostage is going to do that's going to make me turn against the innocent people that are caught in the middle of all of this, you know? So my best scene is like, is one of those moments where the walls are closing in. It's these, you know, there's constantly these pincer moments where, you know, is our members of the gang going to get caught? Is the mm-hmm. professor who's kind of like the eye in the sky? He's not in the bank or in the mint with the other with the other members of the gang. He's like controlling from a remote location. That's but occasionally, point. that location is almost you know revealed to the authorities and stuff. Yeah, and so um, and so it's those pincer moments where it's like, how is somebody going to get out of this situation? Those are the ones that get your heart racing, get you on the edge of the couch, like all Keep that you stuff. Coming back for more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the one that the one that stood out was there's a scene where the professor uh, he told one of the gang members to destroy his car because it had like fingerprints and evidence of like his identity and stuff like that in there. And it turns out that the gang member took it to the junkyard, but didn't didn't wait to see if the car was destroyed and sure enough the car was not destroyed and so he's got to go to the junkyard and try to get the car destroyed before the cops that was find it and identify him that was good a great oh my god the clock oh my god because it's it's one of those where it's like here they're coming he's stuck in this place He's definitely going to get found out. And you're just like, how is he going to get out of this situation? This is a no win situation. And he manages to get out of it. And it's one of the most clever, like crazy things you've ever seen in your life. It's great. Yeah. Is there a bad performance in the whole series? Is there anybody that's kind of distractingly bad? I think everybody is fantastic. I think everybody's really good. You know, the the thing that's hard. So you have the first heist, right? And you're introduced to the characters. And the the thing that I will say about the show that I really love is that the writers were brave enough not to be afraid to kill their darlings, right? So there are characters that don't make it to the end of these heists that you're like, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Like, that's the thing about the show that keeps you on your toes is like, at any point, one of these characters could drop out. That yeah. doesn't mean that they're out of the show because the, sh- the show, like Lost, it has a lot of flashbacks. It has a lot of that kind of, it plays with time a little bit. Yeah, both just to give us insight into the heist themselves through the professor's lectures, if you will, and then also into the character's past so we can learn more about who they are and why they're there right right yeah i guess what i would say is that 
the thing that stood out to me the most was that they were still introducing new characters in season five of this show when like the second heist is wrapping up we're still getting introduced to new characters that are going to play a pivotal moment in the heist and it's like that's the part where you think to yourself yes this is really good and these actors are doing a great job and it's almost like you've you've lived with the main cast for so long that you don't really want to add other people to the mix because it may throw stuff off you know that being said my favorite performance by far was alba flores who plays nairobi i yeah. thought she was incredible nairobi is one of the one of the female um gang members along with tokyo she uh, is sort of a mother figure to the gang in a way, but she's also like, she's very independent. She's very strong. She's very stubborn. She won't sort of be like talked down to by the stronger male members of the group. And she's also the smartest one in the room. She's the one that kind of feels like she understands what's going on most of the time. And that's that's the character that I always gravitate to, you know, in a, in any kind of heist situation is the one and, that's like when when the when the stuff hits the fan, they're the one that stays frosty through it all. And, and that's what and, I loved about her. Uh, I just loved her friendship with Helsinki. Yeah. And how much it was kind of a brother sister thing and how much they loved each other. And I won't say more about that because it's uh, it it that bears itself out in some really beautiful ways as the series progresses. But um, the, the, they were always a lot of fun to me. Yeah. What was your best performance of the show? Mm, well, I think I may have mentioned this before as it fell under my favorite kind of maybe s- sequence or scene, if you will. But I, I just, I liked Berlin because you learned something about him later in the season that adds complexity to his character maybe makes you rethink everything about him. It was really, really hard. I, I, I know I feel like I may be kicking the can, but it was really hard for me to pick one person, unlike mm-hmm. Andor, where I, I, I kind of felt really good about my pick. But yeah, I think Berlin, for me, maybe, was kind of a scene stealer. Um, even though the professor, um, uh, Alvaro Morte, is a, is a phenomenal actor in his own right, I think Pedro Alonso is... Berlin is just, he's just so cool. He's, yeah. He's like a, a raconteur and he's kind of a, you know, an a international man of leisure, if you will. But sinister, like with a sinister edge. Oh. And so oh, it's yeah. like, so you, you're you like fascinated by him, but you don't want to get anywhere near him, you know? Uh, he'll cut you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely um no i think i think i mean that's the beauty of like ensemble pieces is that everybody's bringing their best to the you know to the production and so mm-hmm. yeah it is kind of hard sometimes to like nail that one performance mm-hmm. um, so i totally get it what is a country's gold it's wealth no it's an illusion It's useless. Spain doesn't pay for anything with that gold. Not one transaction, nothing. It's... It's merely psychological. 
gold for brass. So you'll do to the Bank of Spain what Berlin did with the Viking treasure. The exchange was exquisite. So we had talked around some of the theology stuff and you were talking about discipleship. That's so where my head was. I think you were the one that introduced me to the Tom Bissell apostle book. Was that you or was that I may have. I just, I just texted somebody about that book yesterday. Yeah. So I picked up that book and loved it. And if you've never read it, it's basically like, what would you say? It's like part travelogue, part mythology of the Armchair disciples history. of Jesus. Yeah. Um, so he basically he travels around to all of the, you know, kind of understood resting sites of the remains of the apostles. Mm-hmm. And uh, and while he travels to these locations, he gives you insight into like what is the mythology that's risen up around that particular disciple and obviously for some like peter there's like a wealth of stuff and then for others like thaddeus there's nothing you know and you're trying to kind of piece it all together yeah and uh and that's what kind of stood out to to me about the show is this idea of you know pulling together like fishermen and um, tax collectors and, you know, brothers, like, you know, trying to, trying to make a team out of like this ragtag band and this idea that they have to buy in, like at some point they have to be a true believer in what it is that they're doing or they're going to end up dead. Oh yeah. Or arrested, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's obviously, as I mentioned before, my pastor friend kind of spoiled that in a way. I mean, I didn't, I didn't arrive on that at my own, but that's as I watched it with that thought, there was nothing about the series that kind of disabused me of that notion. It was like, to your point, this is very much what this is. Like the disciples themselves, nobody in this series is like the smartest, except for maybe the professor in Berlin. Let's just set them aside for a moment. Nobody's the sharpest tool in the shed. Mm -hmm. Nobody is like super wealthy or super powerful. Um, there are various degrees of physical strength. There's varying degrees of intelligence. But yet, to your point, they all bring something like they're the actors themselves. They all bring something to the table where, obviously, the you know the sum is greater than the parts. I don't know. I, I think that works for me. And it just even is kind of cheeky that it happens to be this kind of Jesus figure and disciples who are trying to steal billions of dollars. I don't know. I just... I love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is like a Messiah complex that's happening in this movie. Like they're trying to appeal to a higher cause other than robbing the men, right? Like the goal is, I mean, I guess the objective is to get the money. The goal is to prove something about capitalism and how pervasive and and warping it is to society. And to me, that's the theology corner. Yeah. Me is is this a because I kind of feel like this is where we are now in the, this point of our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it fit two things. Why did this show become so popular? It's not just because they're hot actors fighting and having sex. It's not just because they're clever heists. I think it's because we inherently know that uh, financial financial institutions are 
corrupt to their core. Right. The game's rigged. Yeah. More importantly, as we see in the series itself, power, military power, police power exists only to protect and preserve the money and the moneyed. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something so exciting about watching that, watching a group of people trying to really break that. Mm -hmm. What they're what they're trying to do is far different than Bonnie and Clyde, for example. Which right. is why I think Bonnie and Clyde was a little pop- remains popular, uh, and so I'm going to ask you a question: Is this a is this magnificent magnificat series that we have? Oh, if yeah. If we talk yeah. about upside down, an attempt to disrupt, bring the rich, make the rich poor, bring the high low, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is do you see it as that, or is that too much? Well, so what I see is that there. Okay, so you have two characters, maybe. I mean, Berlin is a mystery to me, and he's a mystery for the entire five seasons. So let me set him aside. The professor clearly has a, a goal in mind. Like, he he has a cause that he believes in, and he's trying to get other people to believe in that cause as well. Now, he's appealing to their desperation, their survival, their instinct for crime, their skills as criminals. Like he's using those tools, but he's using it for a grander purpose, right? And I think what I would say is that, yes, there is a bit of a Magnificat, but it's almost like there's one person that understands it that way and everyone else is stumbling their way to it. And it's like, if you really believe in this heist, you will believe in that cause too by the end. That's kind of the, the what, the gospel that's being preached, I guess, by the professor. I think the interesting thing and the reason that I'm glad they did a season three, four, and five is that you see the aftermath of that and you get to see how the message can sometimes outrun the messenger. How, like, what it was that the professor wanted to put in place, mm-hmm. now it's gotten way bigger and way more motivating of the general public than probably he understood in that initial heist, you know? Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. And that's where, like, religion gets, I don't know, not scary, but... When it gets out of your hands, right? When it gets out of Jesus's hands and into Paul's hands and into like a zealot's hands, does it warp the message or does it reveal something fuller about the message going forward? Oh, that's a scary question, really, because then you ask, where do you stop with that? Then it gets out of, uh, you know, and then it's in, um, you know, Franklin Graham's hands and Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and then it becomes a question of how far are you willing to go for that belief that you hold. Yeah, for some and, people, it's all the way. Yeah, yeah, you you bring up a good point when you talk about the, and I meant to say this earlier, because there's a there's kind of a parallel between w- real world fans of the series and the rest of the world in the show who are eagerly watching what's happening, um, probably mostly in Spain, but right. for the Spaniards who catch wind of this and are moved by and eventually in three, four and five, help me out here. If I'm saying too much, try to help. 
Yeah. Like they, they try to frustrate the wheels of power um, in a couple scenes that, uh, that quite frankly helped the, the robbers, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. yeah their, their second heist has an audience that is cheering them on. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So for, for me, that was, I mean, and then you think about maybe not necessarily relig- religious, but the spirituality of empathy and connection. And some of these characters don't like each other, but then they grow to like each other because they understand each other better through this process. You know, those are things, those are enjoyable elements of the series, not necessarily specifically religious, but deeply spiritual because it's not just, Oh, here are these hardened criminals who are out trying to take money. There's, there's something compelling about each of them that I think maybe we know people like them or, or mm-hmm. kind of like them to a degree uh, that I think helps too, because they're not completely, uh, well, they're not caricatures of criminals. They they yeah. feel like fully realized characters, which I think is a, uh, is a tall order for, for screenwriters and one that is, that requires empathy and compassion. And yeah, I feel that comes through in the series. There's a lot of heart there. Uh, one last theology uh, corner item for me, which is that, you know, when I think of religion, I think of symbols. Symbology is just such a huge part yeah, of yeah, every yeah. major religion for the most part. Mm-hmm. And you already put your uh, finger on the, you know, the Salvador Dali mask. Like if you pull this up on Netflix, that's like the image, right? Is that mm-hmm. Salvador Dali mask with the red uh, jumpsuit with the hood, you know, over the hair and it serves a purpose in the show. The reason that that exists is they dress up the hostages in the same gear that they're wearing so that the cops don't know the difference between a robber and a hostage so that they won't sort of go in and attack, right? So it serves a function for the story, and yet it becomes a symbol for something else. We've already touched on things like Handmaid's Tale. We talked about V for Vendetta. I mean, but there are other things like this that are sh- that if you put them out there in the realm of pop culture, they say something about what you believe, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking of like the Punisher skull on like bumper sticker on the back of a car. If you've got that on your car, I know what kind of person you are. Like it's short, fa- it's shorthand for your personality. Same thing for like a, I don't know, like if you're throwing Pepe the Frog memes up on Twitter. Like, I know who you are. I know what you're trying to do, right? What do you think What do you think people are saying when they co-opt this image? So that's the question. Like, for me, it feels very much kind of like the Ven- V for Vendetta mask. It feels like a, a break the wheel kind of mask, right? A bit, a bit anarchist. Yeah, a bit. yeah. Um, and that mask, like, like we said before, was sort of has become synonymous with synonymous with anonymous. <laughs> um, but yeah, this idea of let's, let's break these financial, you know, institutions that bind us. Let's do, you know, let's, let's give power back to the people. It, it get, it, to your point about the message outrunning the messenger, maybe call that back for a second. The professor and his Mary band are not anarchists, are they? No. I don't I don't think they are either. I mean, he has a he has a real plan and they have a real idea of what they want to do with this money when they get it. It may be about breaking a system, but it's not about chaos. Right. All that is to say that, like, this show does a really good job of, like, giving you the symbol and then you get to see how that symbol kind of morphs over the course of the show. 
And then like you point out how that symbol morphs into reality, into our reality. Yeah. What is, what does that mask say about who you are when you show up wearing it at the world cup? You want to talk about Netflix real quick? Yeah. What do you got in mind? I am fascinated that you picked this show and I'm so glad that you gave us some of the history of like who was watching the show and why. Uh, brief kind of brief kind of thoughts about Netflix. Netflix isn't really an entertainment company. We think of it as an entertainment company because they have TV shows and movies and stuff. But Netflix is really a tech company, right? Their their whole purpose is to get people to subscribe to their platform, and they they use their algorithms to figure out what's going to get people to do that. It doesn't matter to them the quality of a movie or a television show. It doesn't seem to me. Now I know it that doesn't at all. No, it I doesn't. know that over the last few years they've been angling for Oscars and stuff like that. You've got like things like The Irishman, things like Roma that they've been heavily, heavily promoting and stuff. And then if you think about if you go all the way back to things like House of Cards and stuff like that and how they tried to enter the prestige TV space, I understand that too. But like if Wednesday has proven anything to us, it's that Netflix doesn't know what's going to be a hit any more than we do. You know, it's really their whole model is throw it against the wall and see what sticks. The problem is that even when it does stick or seems to stick, it they they're not necessarily going to stand behind it. But you're exactly right. I'm mean, on the film, the, and you have to understand too that the film side and the TV side are different animals. So we're talking about TV. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a little bit of um, crossover criticism to be leveled, if you will. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you from firsthand experience, like the TV side doesn't know what the film side's doing, doesn't know what the TV side's doing. Oh, like, okay, interesting. I didn't so, know that. There's such a cynicism to the to the awards play on their part, where it's like, right. where did you buy this thing? And let me tell you, voters, this is, I'm not saying anything new here, and you can read uh, far better uh, observers and critics about this than me, but they know. Like, the voters know, and they're just like, for a long time, they're like, we're not going to reward this. I mean, yeah, Roma may be a, a great film, a beautiful film, but there's politics at work, and mm-hmm. entertainment politics at work, and which is why these awards don't necessarily mean anything. Right. Uh, but but that's an interesting take to say that they're not, you know, uh, entertainment company. And I think you're I think you're right in saying that because you can never and it really uh, frustrates me because I see a new series come out and I think, oh, do I want to invest all this time, energy and effort into it? And but it's not going to go anywhere. Like, yeah, why do I want to watch this magnificent, potentially magnificent thing, but it's. I'm going to be left with this cliffhanger. Right. You're never going to know where it goes or like yeah. it's like reading half a book and somebody takes it away from you. You know, it, it, that's, that's been really frustrating to me. And I watch, uh, I think I probably watch less on Netflix than any other thing, but of course mm-hmm. that always changes, doesn't it? Like, I, uh, but I did watch Wednesday and thought that was quite good. Yeah. And it's coming back that they green lit a second season of that. Thankfully. I mean, that thing is a monster. It is a, beast as far as like minutes watched or whatever on their algorithm it's crazy yeah so what does that mean for you though like what's your take on it well it just means that there's nobody you know 
So HBO, for instance, there's somebody curating what is an HBO prestige show, right? They're getting the stranger things of the world. And like all of that stuff is being pitched to HBO and they're passing on it because it doesn't fit their brand. Well, Netflix, I mean, what is their brand? Everything is their brand. right? It's like, sure, put it up, see what happens. If it gets enough clicks, then yeah, well, maybe we'll bring it back. Yeah. And the thing about that that's fascinating for me is that for years and years and years, what we were told in America was nobody wants to read their television shows. Like nobody wants international shows. Maybe, maybe they'll watch British shows, but nobody wants to watch like things from Korea or from Spain or from France or, you know, anything like that because they don't want to, you know, they want to watch Americans doing American things. The beauty of a show like Money Heist or Squid Game is, the, and Squid Game especially, because it's still the most watched thing on Netflix's platform. And the beauty of those things is that it prove it actually proves that no American audiences will watch international shows. Now Netflix does give you the option of dubbing in English, which I don't know how many people are doing. Possibly a lot in America. I don't know. But just because a show comes from an international place doesn't mean that Americans will instantly reject it. What we've learned is actually, no, Americans are just as open to international storytelling as they are American storytelling. Hey, if there's enough violence, we'll watch anything. Yeah. Um, where are you? Where do you stand on international shows? Do you? Uh... Oh, yeah, I have no problem. If it's good, I'm going to watch it. In fact. Uh, the other series that I saw on Netflix from, I believe it was Germany called dark as uh, a time travel mystery thriller kind of show. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, um, I can't recall how it did critically, but, uh, and then, uh, the same production company, their new series just premiered a couple months ago called, I, I believe it was 1899. It seemed to be kind of like a Bermuda triangle thing. And it seemed promising. I watched a couple episodes in one of those shows that I just kind of never got back to. And then I learned that Netflix had decided not to renew it for a second season. And and upon hearing that, I was like, well, I don't know that I'll watch more episodes because mm-hmm. it's going to end with a cliffhanger that I don't know where it's going to go. And why? Why? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I love international stuff. I mean, Peaky Blinders is another Netflix series that that I really love. But again, also in one that's extremely violent. So, yeah, I don't we're watching. Uh, Again, I know they're English language, but we're watching Trying, or we watch Trying on Apple TV, which is a British comedy, dramedy, Um, Slow Horses. We like a lot of British TV, too. But yeah, there's some more. We wanted to watch some more more Korean series. There's a couple on Netflix and I believe Apple TV that that are on our list. Yeah, it should be noted. There's a Korean money heist. So Hmm. there's a money heist from Korea. Final thought on Netflix. What I would say is I remember when I first got Netflix and this was still the DVDs in the mail and all of that stuff. And I think they had like a streaming like CD that they that you could play in your PlayStation 3. And it would like have like streaming stuff through their service and that disc would always break and then I would like lose it. And, you know, yeah. You remember how you remember how bummed you were when your disc didn't arrive on time? (laughs) Exactly. I remember us watching TV series through Netflix DVDs. Yeah. 
and you you know you'd be waiting for the dvd dude i i caught up on all the all the uh later seasons of sliders you know with uh, jerry o'connell i caught up on all of those through dvd i i would i would say this like i've been with netflix since since those days and netflix is the closest thing to what it felt like when i was working at the video store like the hollywood video back you know back in college it's like when you're you know when you just have access to every movie possible and it's like you don't have to worry about spending money on something that could be bad you just fire it up and see what happens and that's the thing that I'd love about Netflix is that if you get off of your algorithm and just start searching through like what's deep, deep down there, you can find some crazy stuff and some stuff that's, you know, you may really like that's just off the beaten path. I mean, Netflix has a series that I want to watch that, you know, it's one of these, speaking of international series, and I just never, I don't know why I forget it or but they have a Oktoberfest series. From Germany called Beer Oktoberfest, Beer and Blood. <laughs> yes. Great. Two favorite things, beer and violence. <laughs> Sounds like a good Saturday night. And uh-huh. enjoy. Uh-huh. We'll see if uh we'll see if it shows up on our show. If, um if- speaking of our show, uh, I think we've got Money Heist. Great show, great pick. I'm gonna spin the wheel and see what oh, we're gonna do next. Part of the, my favorite part of the episode, spin the wheel. Yeah, wait a second. Do I have the volume up? Give the people what they want. Oh, Ryan, the wheel is good to us. The wheel is very good to us. Show it, don't tell. Show, don't tell. White Lotus is going to be our next series. Which season? Uh, Both of them. Oh, just Just like, yeah, we're taking on the whole series. So we got the White Lotus season one and season two. Gosh, it'd be great if we could get the creator on here. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> yes it would be great to get mike white onto the pod yeah you know he has uh religion ties um i know that he has survivor and amazing race ties i don't know about religion yeah his dad was uh kind of an evangelical faith leader um okay all right well Mel- work your magic <laughs> Mel- <laughs> see, see <laughs> Reverend Reverend Dr. James Melville White was a former speechwriter and ghostwriter for Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson. Oh wow. Yeah. Um that's not what Mike White is, really. No. <laughs> nope. So the White Lotus, I'm so excited. It's maybe my favorite show of 2022. So okay. I'm super excited to be able to talk about it. Um, Ryan, thanks for uh, thanks for coming and uh, stealing some money with me today. I wish we would have made out with more. Yeah. My pockets are empty. It was fun though. Yeah, there you go. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. I don't care. I don't-